Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn in your life. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. And I think when we pursue our values, we're going to be so much more willing to tolerate the distress that comes our way. You know, no big goal doesn't come with negative feelings. And yet, because we are such a goal-driven society and because we have been told messages from media that, oh, like, strive for happiness, strive for happiness. Well, happiness is not really the absence of negative emotion. I think a better definition of happiness is like living a life well-lived. And if it comes with some stumbling blocks, like, Expect that because if you're really rooted to your values, then you're going to feel better about yourself at the end of the day, looking yourself in the mirror, being proud of the person that you are. Hello, friends. It is another week on the U-Turn podcast, and I thought I would bring on Judy Ho, who is the author of Stop Self-Sabotage, Six Steps to Unlock Your True Motivation, Harness Your Willpower, and Get Out of Your Own Way. God knows we can get rid of all of those things and get on all of those things. And then she's also the co-host of Doctors, the Doctors, Professor at Pepperdine, all the things. And so, of course, we're going to talk about how to stop yourself sabotage. She has a book out on it. It's brand spanking new. You've got to check it out. We're going to talk about the data, weight loss, relationships, what happens when we're making progress. And then suddenly for some reason we go down in flames and get in our own way. So we're going to talk about some steps that you can take to get out of that. Judy, thank you so much for your time. Oh my gosh, Ashley. It's such an honor to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, you are up to so many important things and it's not every day that I meet a beautiful, smart woman with a PhD. So talk to me about (laughs) what got you interested in self-sabotage as a topic. And I'm, I'm sure that you were researching it much earlier than right now. So tell me about your journey with that. Yeah, you know, self-sabotage really interested in me because I think it is a universal phenomenon. We are all prone to doing it at some point in our lives. And for most of us, it might just be a slip up here and there. But then for some of us, it becomes a pattern that we lock into. And particularly, I find that there are people who are quite happy with like the way their life is going, but there's just one or two areas, whether it's health, whether it's relationships, whether it's their financial management, or whether it's their career, that they just can't seem to get traction on whatever goal they set for themselves. And they keep asking themselves why. And they'll say things like, man, I sabotage my diet. Man, 
man. I sabotage that relationship. But then everyone just kind of says, oh, well, and moves on. And I'm like, no, there are solutions to this. There are scientifically based solutions to this. And so that's why I decided to write my book because I saw that it was affecting everyone. Nobody was exempt from this. You know, mm-hmm. whether it was my friends or colleagues or family members or the patients that I worked with, everybody has had a personal experience with self-sabotage. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm like thinking also just around money. It's like, there's just so many habits. And it's funny because you can look at some people and I think it's like confidence. You know, some people will say she's confident as if it's this sweeping thing, but maybe you're confident in one area and not in others. Maybe you're self-sabotaging in one area and flying in another. Um, although it has its way of leaking. So what, what do you think is going on? Like, let's take somebody like me. I am thriving in a lot of places. Um, but I have self-sabotage perhaps with fitness. Like I'll start doing fitness and then I'm like, eh, I don't want to do this or I'll have weight loss goals so that I can feel better. My pants don't fit, whatever. Um, and usually it's around body that I'm self-sabotaging and I know everybody has something different, but what do you think is really the general root of, of it all for everyone? If that's possible. Yeah. You know, I actually do find that in my research and in my work, I found that there are four general factors that lead people to self-sabotage, sort of the underlying drivers for why they self-sabotage certain areas of their life. And I have a quiz that people can take to find out which of these four areas is plaguing them the most, but there's an acronym so that you can remember them easily. And the acronym is life. I mean, literally life does happen to all of us. And basically the four factors will either, one of them will stick out for this person, or maybe it's a combination of the four, but they will explain why you veer towards self-sabotage in certain areas of your life. So L stands for low or shaky self-concept or self-esteem. So, you know, self-esteem is a complex idea. Not all of us has just like kind of one idea of self-esteem. There's sort of like self-esteem with work, self-esteem with relationships, self-esteem with health and diet and body. And there's all of these different aspects of our self-esteem. So if there's one area of your self-esteem that's a little bit weaker or you just question yourself more, you'll find that that area is where you tend to self-sabotage most in your life. Mm. I stands for internalized beliefs. So this is all of the messages that we learned in childhood, whether it was from important adults like your parents or teachers, maybe they told you, you know, certain things like here's a lesson of life or you just watch the way they cope with problems. But either way, as you get older, you find that you actually adopted some of their beliefs as your own. And those types of things can hold you back. So if you had parents who said, hey, you know, the world is a really scary place out there. Like just stay close to home. Like don't do too much. Like if you had a parent like that, then that might stick to you. Or if you had a parent that was overly critical, when you become an adult, that parental voice becomes critical to yourself. F stands for fear of unknown or change. And so for all human beings, change is kind of difficult, you know, because we can't control everything. And so some personalities, they thrive on change a bit more, but other personalities, they do have more of a problem with something that they don't know. And so if they don't see very far ahead of them, they don't know how it's going to turn out. They're less likely to take a leap, which of course can get in the way of them reaching their goals. And finally, E is for excessive need for control. So these are people who see themselves as very perfectionistic. They're very much go-getters. Well, they have to have so much control over the situation that it's very hard for them to step back. And sometimes in life, you do have to step back. You have to step back so that other people can come in and like contribute their ideas and, and fall in love with you or whatever the case may be. And I find that 
that can definitely be an area of self-sabotage, particularly with romantic relationships when, yeah, there is a second person in the picture. You cannot control how they feel about you and how they're going to act towards you. Oh, yes. And also, isn't control sometimes a mask for um, like low self-esteem or anxiety? Yes. Like, does it tie in? Because I know that perfectionists, usually they're just wearing this mask for feel, fear of failure, you know? Um what are your thoughts Absolutely. on like what's under all of these things? Like if we look at low self-esteem, what's that about? If we look at internalized beliefs, like what do you see below each of these? That's such a good question. You know, so I think to start with what we were talking about, you know, people who have excessive need for control, oftentimes there is a little bit of a mass. There is a little bit of a need to over control so that things don't get messed up and then you don't get discovered. Like this idea of an imposter syndrome can really be inherent in this idea of excessive need for control. You know, what's underneath the low self-esteem and self-concept for many people is really honestly this, this idea, this basic idea that perhaps you're not worthwhile or not worthy as a person or that perhaps you're not loved. And I think that even though that feels very dark, I think people have these fears. Like, do people truly love me for who I am? And oftentimes that drives them to work harder at certain things and like overcompensate. Oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, I better cover it up or at least not admit it because then people will really see that I'm not worthwhile. And so it can lead to like all of these stops in your goal pursuits and like how you live your life because the whole time you're just trying so hard to see if you can earn that love from others and like to not lose it when you have it. And that leads to a lot of fear-based behaviors because if you're afraid to lose something, then it causes you to act in such a way that might be like a little hypervigilant or you might be overreactive. And then of course, it then curries the exact thing that you feared, which is that people might say, well, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Or like this relationship is over. And you're like, oh my God, like this is exactly what I fear. Yeah. It's self-fulfilling and, prophecy. Yeah, I'm so fascinated. Exactly. Can, what are your thoughts like if we can ground into this idea of self-fulfilling prophecies because I think a lot of people don't realize how much they're creating their reality you know like yes can you give an example um because I have plenty with my own experience with money for example like I had a business that generated five million dollars in two months and then I lost it all and it was because I was afraid of losing it all that I lost it all like I made a lot of decisions out of that fear that created the loss so Um, can you kind of work through like with self-sabotage, how it ends up being such a self-fulfilling prophecy? Absolutely. I think a lot of times when people look at self-sabotage, you know, I mean, what is really defined as is just getting in your own way, despite your best intentions, you know, and that describes exactly what you were talking about. This idea of like, man, like the more that I like thought about something and like tried to work on it, like the more like this expected thing happened because of my fear. And I think that sometimes there is that level of, you know, you paying so much attention to it that actually ends up being so detrimental because you start to think about everything so that you don't actually do anything or you do things that are almost out of an emotional reaction rather than like a thought out process. So like all of these things can happen. And I think the idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy of course, coming from this fear-based place, it's all about loss. It's all about the potential or the idea of loss. Mm -hmm. And when we think about loss as human beings, we do much more drastic things that come from the emotional part of our brain than the 
more executive function part of our brain that like makes good decisions and thinks about complex ideas. Like that part of the brain just like shuts off when so much fear is involved. Like your brain is literally flooded with like fight or flight types of feelings. And so when that happens and you act from an emotional place, that's when people self-sabotage and that's when people create these self-fulfilling prophecies that later on, of course, the irony is then they use it to like confirm their earlier beliefs about themselves. Like, oh, see, I knew it. I knew I was no good. I knew that the guy was going to break up with me. I knew that this business wasn't going to work out, you know, and, and then it actually strengthens that negative belief. And then the next time, then it happens again. And the fear is even stronger. Yeah. I think a lot about like, um, I was just laughing at myself the other day. I had a really important document, um, for like something medical, like a prescription, or I don't even know what it, I remember what it was, but I remember thinking like, Oh, I got to put this in a really safe place. Cause I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. And then I couldn't remember what my safe place was. Like how many people have done that? It's like the ultimate, like you have a fear, you operate out of it and then you create the result you don't want. It's just so ironic. So um, kind of looking at this life metaphor, um, or I don't even know if it's a metaphor acronym, um, you said internalized belief. So when you look at the root of low self-esteem, would you argue that that comes from your upbringing or where do you think that ultimately starts? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think when we look at people who, um, struggle with these internalized beliefs, when we're young, we get our messages about who we are as people, how people should respond to us, how the world should work, who should we trust, who should we not trust. And so the things that we learn, especially in childhood, because we really do come into this world like ready to learn, kind of blank slates, you know, it is so much hinging on our early childhood experiences. And so these internalized beliefs, you know, they stick with us more because at that time of life, we're soaking everything up and everything makes a bigger impression on us. So, you know, even when you think about the idea of, you know, when somebody goes through something traumatic, like in childhood versus as an adult, people recover much better if they go through something traumatic as an adult. But then when they go through something traumatic as a child, it's like sometimes they like, hopefully like they do recover at some point, but sometimes it takes years before they feel better. And that's really the idea is that internalized beliefs, they are just so deeply rooted in us. It's our first idea of how the world works and who we are. And so even later, when other information comes in that like challenges those earlier beliefs, our human brain is so much better at like assimilating new information into our heads and making it fit what's already there versus taking new information and saying, huh, I should change the way I think about this. And then like completely come up with a new idea. Like our brains are just, I mean, they're kind of like, our brains are inherently kind of lazy most times. And so it's more like, ah, whatever, whatever fits, like they just like make it fit, like make the shoe fit as opposed to like, oh, I, I need a different size, you know? And that's really part of what internalized beliefs does to us and how it contributes to self-sabotage. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then, um, also fear of the unknown. This is huge. And I know okay. it looks like everything. Um, I- I'm trying to also just piece this together as it relates to like my body. Like, you know, I'm yeah. listening to you talk and I'm like, man, what is, you know, what is my self-esteem? Like if I want to lose five pounds, why can't I lose five pounds? So what are some things? Cause I know most anyone who's listening to the podcast, I think I read a statistics and, I, and I'm going to butcher this, but I believe I read 91% of women are not happy with their body and I can't um, confirm it. I have to go look, but you know, it's like, it's crazy. It was a vast majority of women. Um, so I know most yeah. women who are listening to this, especially they've thought about changing their body in some way. Um, so what is your take on that as it relates to like, why is it so fucking hard? You know? 
Yeah, it's so crazy because, you know, it's interesting because people will say that they are dissatisfied with their body. And by the way, your statistics were um, right on. It's uh, There's multiple studies about this, but basically body dissatisfaction um, in like age group of 25 to 34 was 90%. Oh my and God. 93% between 35 and 44. I mean, really across the lifespan, it's high. I mean, even into 75 and above, you know, people who are grandparents, like it's still 72%. So you would think, oh, older and wiser, they might not care. Oh, they care. They still care at the age of 80, you know? So it's like something that we can't, we can't really escape. But, um, but the reason why I think, um, fear of the unknown is so prevalent and, and, and as it applies to sort of even body image is like, it's interesting. Like we say that we're dissatisfied, but then when we start to make change, it's scary because then people start thinking about things like, oh, but what is it going to take to maintain this? You know, yeah. like I'm working so hard and I've only lost five pounds. I still have 10 more to go. And like, if I have to cut back even more or exercise even more, like how could I keep this up for the rest of my life? And like, how would my life change? And like, just even that idea, it's so weird that like, even if you can see that there might be some positivity at the end of the line, it's almost like sometimes people choose to just stay in the stagnant because, well, at least you know how to deal with it when you're five sizes bigger than you like to be. I mean, all your clothes are that size at least, so you don't have to go shopping again and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's so crazy how we talk ourselves out of change. And it's almost like that whole the devil you know concept. It's yeah. like you'd rather deal with the problem you already have been dealing with for years. Yes. And it's so painful. Okay. So. Um, okay. So understand why it happens frequently. And those of you who are taking notes, the life acronym, I wrote down low self-esteem, internalized beliefs, fear of the unknown. And then the final one need for control. Why do you think certain people have a need for control and other ones don't? You know, it's interesting. The people who have a need for control, when I've talked to them about their childhoods, they kind of come from like two very distinct uh, populations. One is the type that their household was chaos. Like it was just chaos. Their parents were chaos. The siblings were chaos. There was no structure. And it's almost like as adults, they decided, okay, I really need to be a person who has ultimate control over everything because I didn't have any of that as a child and it really rattled me because, you know, kids need structure. And then there's, of course, the other side where some people say, oh, I came from a house that was like militaristic. So in some ways, it's almost like that they adopted those ideas for themselves, a little bit like related to the internalized beliefs where, okay, like this is how my life needs to be. Unfortunately, when you have such a need for control, you don't realize that actually we have very little control. Like we can pretend we have control and perceive control does feel good to us but like truly like none of us really have much control over anything yeah and so so when you like really get stuck on this idea of like i need control i need control you miss out on life because because people will prioritize their need for control over other things that could bring them joy, that could bring them happiness, that could bring them more fulfillment and more connectedness. And earlier I mentioned that romantic relationships is much, very much like this. I have friends who are, you know, very much need for control and they are just like overly critical of every person they've ever went on a date with. And it's just like, wow. But really what's beneath it is that they just don't want to be vulnerable. You know, oh. they don't want to let themselves kind of be seen like truly for who they are. Totally. And I think that that can be such a huge stop to like finally finding people that you connect with and like 
can actually help you to live a better life. Yeah. I have a friend and she is like one of the biggest treats of all time. Like she's just so much fun every time I see her, but she, her dating life hasn't moved for like a half decade and she's beautiful and she's smart and her career is amazing. Like she's just great. And I've just realized like, this is it. It's like, she has such an intense fear of vulnerability and you know it, I know it because whenever I get vulnerable with her, she's crawling in her own skin, you know? Yes. And so it's, It's just been such interesting feedback for me to notice. And what do you think it is about people who feel fear of vulnerability? Like, what is at the root of that? You know, I think there's a couple of different things. And I think one in terms of the fear of vulnerability is that you basically see any kind of uh, emotional connectedness or talking about negative emotions as a character weakness. And I know some people who just believe that is a character weakness. And I think, again, comes from a couple of different things. Sometimes in childhood, they were told by their parents to like not express negative emotions, like just, you know, keep your chin up, like stop complaining, like basically told by adults that, you know, negative emotions aren't okay, you know? And I think that that can be part of it. I think the other part of it is that sort of sense of like being discovered. Like people will finally see that like you're not as together as you really look like you are. And, you know, maybe you're weak or like maybe there's something else missing. And like there's an intense fear that once people find that out, they'll no longer want to hang out with you. Mm. And so sometimes it gets stuck on this idea and they've made themselves believe that like people only want to hang out with me because I'm a go-getter and I like, I take care of other people and blah, blah, blah. And of course, it's another self-fulfilling prophecy because then you never, ever be vulnerable with people. And then you use that to convince yourself that like, if you ever were, you know, like everything would fall apart. But like, you've literally not left any space in your life to like, check that out. Like you've never even run that experiment to see if it's true. Right. Mm. So that's a real problem for, I think, people who just, again, like just, they don't want to let their hair down because they think that that might mean something about them characterologically or that like people might abandon them or leave them once they realize, oh, they're not perfect. Wow. We have so much work to do on ourselves, people. I'm listening to this. (laughs) Okay. So we understand why it happens infrequently. For me also, I struggle because it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. Where can people find that quiz that you were talking about? Because for me, it's like I have a, a decent amount of awareness, but I really couldn't tell you why it's so hard for me to lose five fucking pounds and put my jeans on that usually fit me, you know? I know it's really interesting and I think that that introspection like is so important as a first step even if we feel like we're good introspective people sometimes it's good to do a specific exercise just to like really get clear on like a certain area of your life and so this self-sabotage quiz can be found on my website um so my website address is drjudyho.com and then backslash stop self-sabotage quiz and It'll take you five minutes to get through it, and I think it'll bring some interesting insights because that really then helps you to understand, okay, which area of my life do I need to pay more attention to as I'm trying to think about self-development? Oh, so good. Okay. And as we're moving into the next point that we were kind of going to talk about as it relates to self-sabotage, I was also curious, is there some data that you find really powerful? Because like, I think it's so powerful that nearly 90% of women don't like their body. Mm. That just shows you that most women you walk past is duking it out with their body in their head, you know? And that to me is really profound to think about. And also with your compassion that you have throughout the day, like think about times that you didn't feel good in your own body. It's like, that's what other people are going through at different levels of, of the day in their lives. So what are some other statistics or just research that you found that you found really interesting or or surprising? 
Well, you know, there's a lot of different areas, I think. I mean, good for us for, like, actually trying to do more research and find out about it. But, you know, one statistic that really sort of not surprised me, but I was just like, wow, like, this is a big problem, is that, like, 30 to 40% of people will say that they've been depressed in their lives. Like, you know, maybe not depressed for like a whole year, but like significant enough that it affected their activities of daily living. Like they had a hard time getting up to go to work. They had a hard time connecting with friends. Like they felt lonely. Like they felt like their mood was down. They had sleep disturbance problems. They had, you know, eating problems, like things that really impact us on a major level. And I think this really speaks to this idea of, you know, not just dissatisfaction, but just, you know, what's underneath all that? Like, is there something about our mindset? Is there something about our thinking that's driving us to feel depressed? And there's an interesting theory um, called depressive realism, and I find it really funny, but also probably true. Um, it's a controversial theory that people who are not depressed are only not depressed because they're slightly delusional meaning that, like, they're not they're yeah like they're like seeing the world with rose colored glasses all the time and that's why they're not depressed whereas people who you know are depressed at least at some point in their life like it's because they actually like understand what the world is and what life is and like life is hard and like we're all gonna die one day and like you know these things can get people down and like the people who never are depressed are just slightly delusional in their thinking in terms of how things are going to turn out. Whereas people who get depressed are realistic. Like they are realistically assessing the pros and cons of life. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I do think that, you know, it, it does speak though to this idea of like how important our thoughts can be in terms of driving these outcomes. And so, you know, two things can like the same thing can happen to two different people and they could have totally different um, reactions to it. Mm -hmm. And, that, you know, for example, they, two people could be laid off and one person could think, good, I didn't really like that job anyway. And, you know, they actually start to plan a mini vacation for themselves. They like are a little relieved. Whereas the other person's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to tell my partner? What am I going to tell my friends? This is embarrassing. How am I going to afford rent? And of course they go into a downward spiral, yet the event is the same. So like, it's really the thoughts that happen that really lead us down this road of emotional reactions and certain behaviors that might drive us to not feel so good. And so why do we think about thoughts in such a profound way that whenever we have a thought, like it just drives us so much in terms of how we decide that day is going to look. And, and that's a really big part of my book is talking about our relationship with thoughts. Like, why do we think something and automatically believe that it must be true or that it's going to come true? Like, why can't we just let thoughts be what they are, which is a mental event and nothing more? After all, we on average have over 50,000 thoughts a day. I mean, there's no way that all of those thoughts are true. And yet we really hold on to certain thoughts and affect it and let it affect us in very negative ways. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I almost think of it like the um, the little ticker, like the NASDAQ ticker in Times Square, just like information yes. floating through. And it's like, you know, what it's, it's like our minds is just constant flow of thoughts. And it makes me think a lot about the untethered soul and how Michael Singer writes about how there's like this voice in your head. And once you notice it, you can't unnotice it and never stops talking. And it's constantly seeing yeah. things. It's like, why, why are we buying into it? And it's just usually a lack of awareness, not even noticing it. And our bodies feel hurt, our pain, or we feel disconnected and we don't know why it's, it's all thoughts. So this is really powerful work. And what was the statistic you said around depression? How, what percent was it? 
30 to 40 percent wow it's pretty high i yeah. know so it's like i mean that's like you know one out of three people you well, know and it's like you know what all of our thoughts are made up so we might as well win in the weird things we're telling ourselves and just pick nice ones and be delusional versus depressed i guess i choose delusion over depression. yeah me too i love that i'm like oh good i'm like i'm just gonna i'm gonna veer on the side of delusion that's what i learned from that whole study yeah oh my <laughs> gosh you and me both just being delusional together um i and, love it i love it well, it's a shared delusion so then it's not a delusion it'll be our reality perfect i love the way you think judy this is really working for me hey u-turners so sorry for the quick interruption but i want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the career clarity lab the online course to help you find your career purpose in the workforce and upgrade your confidence. So if you're ready to unlock the best career path for you and you'd like to try a free version of our Clarity course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash Clarity. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash Clarity. Now let's get back to this week's episode. You said another step, once you kind of understand why it happens, whether you're somebody who has low self-esteem, internalized beliefs, fear of the unknown, or a need for control. So once you kind of look at those four buckets and figure out, like, which one do I lead with, or you take your quiz over on your website, um, developing strategies to change your thinking. So tell me a little bit about, about that. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can reconstruct our thoughts. And I kind of break it down into three categories. One is to start routinely questioning them. Our thoughts do not equal truth. And I remind myself of this all the time when I just write thoughts and then like the unequal sign and truth, because, you know, that is really something that we need to remember that just because we think something does not mean that it is true or it's going to come true. And yet that's sort of a bias that we have. And so routinely start to question your thoughts. Like when you have a thought that's kind of self-defeating, ask yourself, what's the evidence for and against that thought? You know, like, are you really taking into account everything that's ever happened? Or are you just deciding to like wallow in like one bad thing and then make it like your entire reality that day? So really routinely ask yourself and actually, write it down like what are what's the pieces of evidence that would tell me that this thought is true and what are the pieces of evidence that would tell me that this thought is not you know really make sure that you do that exercise because it's really really helpful and then the second way to deal with your thoughts is to try to find a way to reconstruct them and so okay if this original thought wasn't fully capturing everything that was going on how do we fully capture it and i use a simple exercise called yes but so basically yes fill in the blank, but fill in the blank. So yes, I'm still not at my goal weight, but I have made great strides this week in terms of going to all of my workouts and making good decisions. You know, like recognizing both sides of the story, recognizing what's going well and what you still need to work on. And finally, if none of those work, because some days you wake up and you're just like, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. I don't want to do these exercises. I can't change my thoughts anyway. I just feel bad. Well, sometimes you don't have to change the thought. You just have to change your relationship to it. So instead of, for example, thinking a thought like, I'm never going to reach my goals, which of course that can make you feel horrible about yourself, put this simple clause in front of it, which is, I'm having the thought that... I'm never going to reach my goals. Now, Mm -hmm. see what that happens to your thought when you put that in front of it. It just labels it as, hey, it's just a thought. I'm having the thought that 
I'm not going to reach my goals. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. Doesn't mean that that's my reality. Simply just, I had this thought. And it really brings a lot more of a sense of control and peace to people when they're able to do that consistently. Separate themselves from it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like you are not that little weird thing that just went by. Great. Yes. And, and totally. so the strategy you would suggest the most is probably just evidence-based, like looking at the evidence. Where is it true? Where is it not? Or yes, and, you know, or yes, but. Right. Exactly. And and then of course, if those don't work, then just change your relationship to the thought. Like don't buy into it. Like let's not buy into our thoughts. Let's just label them as what they are and move on. And when you can label them as what they are, you'll find that they just impact your emotions less. It's like thinking, oh, I'm having a thought that I'm going to be a failure. It's a very different thought than I'm a failure. You know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's so helpful. Okay. And then, um, after you've kind of looked at why it happens in those four buckets and you've kind of practiced the yes, but, or looking at evidence. Um, and one thing I, I really love doing is writing in the morning, just free flow writing, like whatever thoughts are coming through my head, good, bad, ugly, genius, all of them. And, um, take putting a star next to the ones that really hurt or that, I, I believe. And so I think if you don't even know what you're thinking and you're listening to this, maybe you can do a little morning data dump and just every morning set aside five minutes with your cup of coffee before you get into your day to just free flow, right? Like do a brain dump onto the page. What are some of the thoughts? What's the noise going on in your head? You know? Um, Oh, I love that idea. Just like a brain dump as part of your morning routine, because then you unclutter your head. You know, people don't realize the power of writing something down that it does help. I'm just like how you have a to-do list running in your head. It feels so overwhelming. And then you're like, I don't even want to write it down. It's so scary. But then once you write it down, it's actually so much better. So healing. Yeah, totally. It's so helpful. Get it out of your head and onto the page. That's what I had to go through when I was writing my book. It was like, I need a notepad by the the bed or I'm going to just think about this thought and be afraid I'm going to lose it all night. So there we have it. Okay. Um, totally. okay. And then you have some tips from athletes to get to the next level. Um, so let's say everybody's working this process. Maybe they're doing brain dumps in the morning. They know which of the four categories they are. Um, what are some tips that you've learned from elite athletes that you think really help as it relates to self-sabotage? Well, elite athletes really harness the power of not only visualization, but planning ahead. And I think all of us have had that experience where, you know, you just can't rely on your willpower, for example, at the end of the night when you're already tired, you're exhausted, and, oh, are you going to choose a healthy salad for dinner? Or does it really sound good to have, like, that burger, which you're like, ah, I know I shouldn't, but, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, that sounds so much more delicious right now. Well, in the beginning of the day, we have much more willpower than the end of the day because our willpower is like a muscle in our body. Like, it's depletable. And so over the course of the day, you've got stress, you've got decisions that you had to make, and your brain is exhausted. And when you leave the decision-making to when you're already emotional, already tired, you're going to make the self-sabotaging behavior much more uh, frequently than making sort of like the better behavior that will move you forward. And so what elite athletes have done is they use the power of visualization to not only visualize their success, because, you know, like, you know, elite swimmers, for example, they'll visualize themselves crossing the finish line, visualize themselves swimming. And there's research that shows that they actually perform better after a round of visualization versus like a round of actual practice, which is, I think is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. So they do use visualization that way, but they also use visualization to like, think about the potential pitfalls they might have. So like, okay, where could I go wrong 
today in the game? Where can I go wrong today in the race? And they, and for every barrier that they imagine or visualize, they will come up with a if then statement. Like if I do this, then I'll do this to get myself out of it. If I find myself in this situation, then I'll do this. And the key is planning it ahead before the actual event or before the time you think you might need it. And so it's really helpful to like, visualize the barriers that could get in the way of a healthy behavior and then write down what you'll do instead. So if your unhealthy behavior is binge eating, then you can say, okay, well, when do I tend to binge eat most? Okay. Well, it's usually when it's at the end of the night and I'm sitting down to watch Netflix. All right. So if it's after 10 PM and I'm sitting down to watch Netflix, then I'm going to make sure that I have like sparkling water instead of blah, blah, blah. But you need to write it down. The most important thing is that you plan it ahead and you write it down ahead of time so that like when you feel that trigger, like, oh, like I really want to go and reach for like all of those sweets, you look down at like what you wrote down and you say, oh, no, I said that if it's after 10 o'clock and I'm watching Netflix, I'm having sparkling water. And you just do what it says on the page. And it makes it so much easier to replace your bad behaviors with healthier ones. You know, it's it's like so much of life is anticipation. I remember my first job in counterterrorism, my boss um, at the Pentagon, he used to say to me, and I'd be like, what else can I do? And he'd be like, anticipate. And I'm like, anticipate what? Like, we work in national security. Like, I'm looking at the data, but like, you know, if, if an attack happens, I didn't anticipate, you know? Um, and so it's one of those things where I think like so much of life is anticipation and we don't think enough about how much we can do to anticipate, you know? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's all about planning ahead and, you know, doing those drills. I mean, as much as we hated those drills, like earthquake drills, fire drills, like they do come in handy because when the thing happens, like your muscle memory kind of basically snaps in and it's like, oh, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to go to this desk. I'm supposed to whatever. Like we do follow through. And so I think that people sometimes think, oh, those things are not important, but actually that planning ahead is, you know, really the key to success. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't even realize where they're self-sabotaging. And even if they do the buckets exercise, um, they might not even have that emotional kind of wherewithal to think, oh, if I do this, then I do that. Cause they're just in it, you know? Yeah. So what are some ways that we can start to pay attention to ourselves to notice so that we can figure out what we want to make if, and then statements for? So a really good uh, way to sort of know when the stop gaps are is to notice when you're not feeling comfortable, when you're having a negative emotion, when you are sort of having this feeling of anger or frustration or sadness or even boredom and, and think to yourself, what was going on right before this? Like right before I felt this negative emotion, like what was going on in my mind? What was I just thinking? Because every emotion is preceded by a thought. And so sometimes these if thens are set up by like, if you have a certain negative emotion, or if you have a certain type of thought, then you're going to do this because those are sort of like the beginning seeds to actions that end up hindering us and getting in our way. And so if you can identify trouble spots in your thinking and trouble spots in your feelings, then you can sort of create an if then for those moments. And so for, again, you know, back to the healthy behaviors and, you know, this idea of um, binge eating for a lot of people, the negative emotion isn't even anger. It's just like boredom. Like that, that is something that can get in the way of their better uh, behaviors. And so even just being able to isolate that and understanding, wow, if I feel bored, apparently I like to eat as a result of that. So what else can I do when I'm bored? Like, what can I plan ahead with? Like, should I put a jigsaw puzzle out? 
Should I have some other games that are kind of interesting? Should I call a friend? Like, what should I do instead that would like make things a little bit more interesting and enticing, but I'm not reaching for the unhealthy snacks. And let's talk a little bit about relationships. I know a lot of people, maybe they haven't had good relationships and they're finally in a great one and then they'll feel the desire to self-sabotage. What are the thoughts that you would have just at first glance at something like that? Because I know that everybody's gone through something with weight loss. I also know there's a lot here with relationships. Well, it's so interesting because people self-sabotage their relationships all the time. And I think this is where the most vulnerability can happen for people. Like, you know, they can reach their goals in certain areas, but with relationships, like it's so personal. And when it doesn't work out, it's so personal. When people say it's not you, it's me, it's like a freaking lie because it is you. Like there's only two people in this relationship. How can it not be be you a little bit? You know, it's just like, it's like such an annoying thing when somebody says that. It's like, yeah. And so I think, you know, it's, it's hard not to personalize that, which I think is why people can self-sabotage relationships because it's almost like they see it further down the line and they're already anticipating that it's not going to work out. And it's interesting that some people just be like, well, then I'd rather just like blow it up first because crazily enough, if you blow it up first, then there's a sense of control because then if the person's like, well, that's it, I'm not dealing with you anymore. Then you're like, aha, I knew it. But at the same time I caused it. So I don't feel as bad as if you just all of a sudden dropped the bomb on me. I came home thinking that we had an awesome vacation and you're like, yeah, we got to talk. Like this isn't working. You know? So people oftentimes will blow up a relationship before it gets even further because it's almost like they're afraid of like what might be down the line. Like what if at the end it doesn't work out? What if I have all these expectations and they're not on the same page? And all of these fears, again, the fear-driven behaviors will cause the self-sabotaging and often self-fulfilling actions of oh, it's so hard to be in a relationship. I've never been in a good one. Well, you have blown up every single relationship at the beginning. So like you've never even allowed yourself to see or test how far these can really go. God, I'm taking notes in my head, like all sorts of mental notes. Okay. And (laughs) one of the final points that we talked about before we started recording was this idea of being a goals-driven society and how a lot of people set goals for the sake of setting a goal. Um, What feedback do you have as it relates to self-sabotage and goal setting for everybody? Well, self-sabotage and goal setting really have a direct relationship because we are such a goal-driven society, you know, to-do lists, bucket lists, new year resolutions. And of course, goals serve us in many ways, but if the goals are not tethered to your values, then they come up empty. And even when you achieve them, you just don't feel all that great about yourself. And values are less talked about, but so important. And these are not new concepts. I mean, our, you know, uh, form, uh, like, or, or sort of like, uh, ancient thought leaders like Plato and Aristotle all talked about this idea of like living a values-based life. You know, what do you want to be remembered for? What are the things that are most important to you in life? And values cannot be checked off. Like if you decide that integrity is a value, you don't all of a sudden decide that you've had enough integrity for your lifetime and check it off. So <sighs> it's something that, right. It's something that we all want to kind of pursue for a big part of our lives, if not for a, a, the entirety of our lives. And if our goals are tethered to our values, are nurturing our values, then we're going to have more willpower, more strength, you know, more motivation to keep going, especially when the going gets tough. Because if you think about somebody whose honesty is one of their top values, like, do you think that's an easy road for that person? Of course not. Like there are some days where they're like, man, being honest is rough today. Like I'm going to have to have this conversation with this friend and I know it's not going to go well. She may even throw something at me. Um, but I still feel the need to talk to her honestly. And I think when we pursue our values, we're going to be 
so much more willing to tolerate the distress that comes our way. You know, no big goal um, doesn't come with negative feelings. And yet, because we are such a goal-driven society and because we have been told messages from media that, oh, like, strive for happiness, strive for happiness. Well, happiness is not really the absence of negative emotion. I think a better definition of happiness is like living a life well-lived. And if it comes with some stumbling blocks, like, expect that because if you're really rooted to your values, then you're going to feel better about yourself at the end of the day, looking yourself in the mirror, being proud of the person that you are. So beautiful. And, you know, it it also kind of gets me curious just about like, what do you think people are doing that are not self-sabotaging? So people who are just in total flow, what are you seeing as consistent about those people? If there is such a thing, such a unicorn out there? Yeah, I know. I think it's hard for people to be like that hundred percent of the time. Although I think there are some people who maybe are 90 to 95% of the time. And, you know, there is an idea about like being true to yourself that applies here. I think that when people are living in a lot of cognitive dissonance, and this is just a fancy term when like your words don't match your actions or your words don't match your thoughts, like something internal is not matching with your external people tend to be a lot more discontented and they will tend to self-sabotage more. Whereas somebody who their internal and their externals are all lined up, they don't self-sabotage as much because there's a lot of consistency. It's like, well, I think this way and I'm going to act this way, you know? Um, Then there's not a lot of internal or external conflict with like who they are and what they're representing. And Mm. when that, when you have that sort of peace and like you said, that flow within yourself, you're just not going to self-sabotage as much because it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not going to be something that you get tripped up on because it's really just like, well, I, I think, and then I do, you know, and, and that's just who I am and like it or not, like, this is where I'm at. I think people like that are just much more at peace with mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about this idea of knowing who you are. And, and I, I'm finding that even working in the influencer space, like it's a game of content. You're constantly creating new information and I think there's a lot of um, like copying or or whatever because there's so much pressure to create content that you hear one good idea and there have been many times where I'll say something that felt really original to me and then next thing I know it's somebody's Instagram post, you know, and and one thing I found, the conclusion I've come to around that is that I don't feel as safe around, you know, like certain friends if I share something, I don't feel that it's safe. I feel like it could be used in some way Um, Mm -hmm. and I've noticed that the belief I've bought into about someone like that is, you know, they might be a really good person, but they don't necessarily know who they are. So I don't know what your thought is on that, but usually I've found that I have less emotional safety with someone who doesn't know who they are. And even though life is a quest of constantly figuring out who you are, um, I found that there's like a fear in me of like, I'm not as safe with this person or something like that. So I'm curious um, how you view people who um, maybe just haven't like locked into their sense of self. What are some thoughts you have on that? Well, you know, I think the reason why you don't feel as safe with people who just like kind of feel like they're wandering and don't know who they are, which is, I think, a totally understandable emotion is that like, you don't really know what's going to happen next with these people. Yes. <laughs> like you really don't, you know, they could have an awesome day and just be like the sweetest pie to you, or they could have a bad day and like emotionally act out against you and like make their problems, your problems, be drama, like all these kinds of things can happen. And I think that that's, that's really the, the sense that I get when somebody like doesn't have a stable self-concept or like don't know who they are is that they don't have an internal compass. So like they're driven by whatever is going on around them. So, 
again, you know, somebody could say something to them and all of a sudden they're having a horrible day and they're going to act out towards everyone. Yeah. You know, they're going to binge drink. They're going to say something rude to you. And you're like, what just happened here? And then all of a sudden the next day, like whatever, they got a compliment on the street. And now they're like, what can I do for you? And you're just like, how am I supposed to behave and um, around a person like this? And what am I supposed to expect from you that day? And I think that that's what jars people about people who like haven't done the work to like discover what their true self is, you know? And like you said, it's a, it's a process and your true self can evolve over time. But if you haven't done the work to like root yourself internally to be like, who am am I without asking everybody else who I am? You know, mm. if you haven't done that work, I think it's hard to like have a good relationship with that person. And I certainly have some people in my life who were like that. And, and I think that as I've gotten older, like I've just pruned these people out of my life, like not in a dramatic way. I'm not like telling them, Hey, you have no self-concept. Bye. I mean, I'm not <laughs> doing, doing anything to like trigger them, but it's more just like, I just start distancing myself from them. Mm-hmm. You know, I just have less of a relationship with them. Well, speaking of your four buckets under the life, you know, acronym, it makes me think about how some people had parents who they didn't have a sense of self and they were kind of all over the place and they came home to an environment where they never knew what they were going to get. Is their parent happy, sad, you know, whatever. And as a result, maybe that translated into those control issues or, um, you know, different things. So I, I would just encourage anybody listening to reflect on what was, what was your environment like growing up and how do you think that affects you now as it relates to the life acronym that you have Judy, which with low self-esteem, internalized beliefs, fear of the unknown, um, issues with control, stuff like that. So this has been really enlightening. Do you have any final words for us or, um, and if not, just let us know where we can find you. Well, thank you so much again for inviting me to talk about all of these, uh, really interesting questions that you had. And, you know, I just encourage everybody to take a look at, you know, your own thought processes, you know, don't be afraid of it because they're just thoughts. They're not going to hurt you. You know, they'll only have as much power as you give them and you decide how much power you want to give them. Like it's up to you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's up to all of us. And, um, and there's, you know, no matter what your past was like, like you don't have to let those past mistakes or things that happen to you, like rule the rest of your life. You know, today is a new day. Let's start differently. Let's make different decisions and let's all try to live a more genuine life that feels consistent to who we are. Um, you guys can check out more resources from me from my website, drjudyho.com. You can also follow me on social at drjudyho, D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. I try to do a lot of wellness tips and posts on my Instagram and I do personally read all of my comments. And so if you have questions for me, feel free to comment at me and any of my posts and I will do my best to answer you and check out the doctors. You know, we are in season 12 and um, we have a lot of really interesting topics, both physical and mental health this year. So definitely check us out, um, see where we are uh, on your local stations because every city is different, but um, we're having a blast filming this season. And I'm just really thankful to still be working with these great people. Oh, wonderful. Judy, thank you again. And everybody, I'm sure you're like me. You're all going to be taking the quiz. I want to know how I'm sabotaging myself. (laughs) Thank you again, Judy. Thank you. Hello, it's me, and I am reflecting on this episode with Judy Ho, and I honestly, uh, there's a couple thoughts that really came up for me around this idea of self-sabotage, because as you're probably noticing, as you're listening to the podcast, everything seems to come back down to childhood and what we could have done, what we couldn't have done, um, and, and just these dynamics with our parents where maybe we didn't get what we needed when we were kids, and as a result, 
the beliefs that we formed about the world translate into our careers and lives later on. And one of the things that I really grappled with in my own personal development journey was accepting the fact that maybe um, my mom or my dad couldn't give me something that I really needed. But instead of, because I found that a lot of times when we start to notice those things, we start to go into blame or frustration. So if you're anything like me, maybe you're doing a lot of personal development and you're starting to notice some memories or traumas and just for lack of a better term, a ton of shit that hurts, that hurts you to face. And if you're anything like I was in that moment where I started to see all of these moments with my parents or all of these times where when I look back at them, I would judge them as poor parenting or whatever, when really my parents did the best they could. It's impossible for them to always give me everything that I ever needed. They're not mind readers. They don't know what I'm thinking. But I think it's more important than ever that when you look at the things that you're working on with yourself, when you look at the pain, the limiting beliefs, the traumas, instead of looking at your parents and going into blame, to realize that those are those patterns, those triggers, those beliefs, those results, they're no longer because of your parents. Now they're yours. They're yours to deal with. It's not that because of my dad, I have this, or because of my mom, I have that. Uh, the truth of the matter is because of me, it's mine now. The, the beliefs that were imparted upon me now belong to me. Um, and so I want to just invite you to shift the responsibility from being heartbroken towards your mom, your dad, or your past traumas and starting to realize that's you now. These beliefs are yours. They're not from your parents anymore. You bought into them. And there's an opportunity to take responsibility for them. Um, it was a huge shift for me to go from, you know, because of my dad, I'm this way, or it's my dad's fault um, that I'm this way, and into, it's mine now. This is my pattern. It has nothing to do with anything anymore. Yes, it started somewhere, but now it's mine, and it's my job to release it. Um, so I just want to shift that focus from what happened to you and who triggered it, caused it, inspired it, to now it's yours, and now it's time to take responsibility. So... Whatever it is um, that is was present for you during this episode, whatever self-sabotage you learned through the limitations you brought into at a young age, I hope that you see this episode as an invitation to break through that. And I'm so excited you're listening. Thanks again for tuning in. And I'm sending you all the love as usual. And I hope you take care. And I can't wait to talk next week. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has down the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley Stahl on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, 
and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.